February 2nd, 2013 in Durban, India. Transmitting the culture of Krishna consciousness to the next generation, the four most powerful things you can do to help your children or anybody be Krishna conscious.
coming again. Consciousness to your children or to anybody. 
I'd like to ask you, think about your own upbringing, the upbringing of others. How did you learn values, culture, behavior, knowledge? What were the, what were the means? Parents. Can everyone in the back see this? Okay, more. Society. Can you be a little bit more specific? I mean, that's kind of big, society. Extended family. Extended family. Maybe a little bit more, get a little bit more detail. These are great. They're kind of big. Okay, media. Suggestions, ideas? How else is culture transmitted? 
And now these are big. You can take within these big categories. You can give me something specific that goes in, inside these big ones. And how did you learn culture and values from parents, society, family, school, friends? What was the process? What, what exactly? Yeah? Routines and habits. Somebody else. Mistakes. Aha, uh -huh, from mistakes. Excellent. Some others. From nature. Can you give me an example of she? Talk in your head, okay? I'm not quite sure what that means. I'm probably great. I just need to know more what it means. Yes. Okay, we have observation. Introspection.
was only from example. And I'm surprised nobody gave me that as a specific. But if you ask, especially people who come from traditional cultures, like Indian cultures, Chinese cultures, and you say, what's the main way that you give your culture and your values to your children, many of them will say by example. That has to do, of course, with observation. And I'm sure when, when many of you said things like parents and society, you were thinking of example. Now, example used to be the main, one of the main ways that culture was transmitted. But if you, want, if you think about it carefully, I say 70 years ago and back, how did people get information from one place to the other? It was very slow. And when I was a little girl, when I was one year old, my older sister moved to Israel. And there were no phones from America to Israel. You know, a letter would take a month. My father wasn't a big letter-writing person. So he bought a tape recorder, which meant it was a big, monster, reel-to-reel thing. Bought one for my sister and one for us. And we would make a tape recording and then mail it to her. She would listen, she and her husband would listen to it. They'd make another tape recording and mail it back to us. And that was what it was like. You know, the first time I traveled transatlantic when I was three, I had to go on a propeller plane. How did you get the news? You know, in those days, it would take you weeks to get news transatlantic or transpacific, right? It would have to come by boat or by propeller plane. Not like today, you get instant news, which, because it's instant, it's often misused. From everywhere. So in the days when communication was very slow and very difficult, you could grow up in a society and not know about any values or culture other than the society in which you grew up. You just wouldn't be exposed to it. So whatever example your parents, your extended family, your religious institution, whatever did in your village, town, that was all you knew. You didn't know about anything else. You didn't know there were other people in other parts of the world who did something else. Or if you knew, it was very vague. You'd see it in some book in school. It wasn't really apparent. And because of that, people could set an example, and basically their children followed that example because that was all there was. Well, my dear friends, that doesn't work anymore. You can set a certain example for your children, but how many other examples are they going to be exposed to? Hundreds in their school, on the media, right? They're going to have hundreds of different examples of culture and behavior and values to choose from. And frankly, your example is not going to talk that much louder than anybody else's. In fact, most kids spend more time at school than they do at home. And most kids spend more time on the media than they do with their parents. So if you're thinking, we're just going to do it by example, it just, that's not going to work anymore. I'm really sorry. Now, if we think about what does work in terms of relationships, the person who said role model talked about people you really look up to. So it's interesting that Chu Prabhupada says, I believe it's in 1976 in Mumbai, when he's talking about Google and Ramachari Ashram. He said there should be a great bond of love and affection. That's also actually a verse of Bhagavatam, he said, Between the guru and the disciple. 
his healing, his pastimes are all stories. And because Krishna loves stories, he loves to be in stories, he loves to hear about stories, he loves to tell stories. We, as part of parcel of Krishna, also love stories. You can notice sometimes, if someone's speaking philosophy to a group of people or residents, they're doing this and that. And as soon as they start telling the story, everybody starts paying attention. It's quite interesting. And what are our shastras full of? Stories. What is the Srimad Bhagavatam? All the philosophy of the Bhagavatam is embedded in stories. Well, there's even a big story. There's Sutra Swami and Shankarishi talking, and then there's Lawrence Brickley with Sutra Goswami, and that's a story. And then within that story, Narayan is talking to Yudhisthira. Right? Or Maitreya and Victor are talking. There's stories within stories, within stories, within stories. And according to modern psychology, those are the most effective, life-changing kind of stories. The story within the story within the story. We know my aunt told me that her cousin said, his friend said, his friend said, his story, and that has more of an effect on people. And that's exactly what the Bhagavatam is. Even Bhagavad Gita is within a story. Krishna Arjuna on the battlefield. It's not just philosophy. Right? Bhagavad Gita Bhagavatam is not just philosophy. All the philosophy is inside the story. And if we think about Narayana especially, the topmost preacher, he's always preaching incredible stories. Here Prabhupada tells also about his content. Some stories can be very short, an analogy is a very short story. And if we think about the media advertising magazines and books, what are they? Stories. I want you to think of how the media has radically changed culture. So we can think of some negative and positive examples. Positive example is when I was a teenager, I would go out and do protest marches in favor of the environment. Now at that time, when I was a teenager, working for the environment was considered very antisocial. You were supposed to be all gone for science and technology. You know, there was a favorite television show of people on a spaceship where food was synthesized by a computer. All chemical food. And this was supposed to be wonderful. I'm really serious. So those of you who were young probably just said, what? It was really like that. Now we thought, wow, chemical fertilizers? Chemical pesticides? Chemical synthesized food made by a computer? Whoa! Progress! Seriously, that was moved all over the planet. It's still moved, frankly, in some places. There's some places in India where if you say, don't use chemical pesticides and fertilizers, they'll say, oh, that's a Western superstition. It's quite interesting. So, how did that change? Now it's completely the opposite. And even the governments are promoting ecological awareness whether or not they follow us. But at least they're promoting it. Why? Stories. Particularly there was this book, Silent Spring, about how people would wake up one spring and all the birds would be dead. From GDT. And stories about people spraying pesticides and having, you know, children with birth defects and so many things like that. And it was those stories that changed people, not a bunch of facts.
It, it completely changed the culture. So that what was antisocial and looked down upon now has become a guiding principle all over almost all of London. How can you think of a negative example? One negative example, that's positive example, is that abortion. So again, when I was a kid, abortion was illegal everywhere. Everybody understood this word. How did that change? From stories. Oh, this is a 13-year-old girl. They got raped. She had an illegal abortion inside. And it would be better. People didn't talk about facts. It wasn't that there was propaganda about facts. Nobody was saying, well, the little babies developed and they put salt on the baby and they put the baby's skin off. What do they do? 
go back to the village. You know what happens next, right? There's a real wolf. And he runs into the town. Whoa, whoa! And they go, you know, fool is three times after fool is And the wolf carries off the best sheep. So when we're telling that story, do you feel like you're being attacked? Do you feel anybody's criticizing you? No, but if I go, hey, why don't you tell the truth? Stories completely bypass the false ego. First of all, you can think it's not about me. Now, I'll bet that all of us here tell lies sometimes, right? You never tell lies. So actually, we are talking about us. But when you hear a story, you don't feel it's about you. It's about some little boy. It's or even if you think it's about someone, oh, my, my friend really should hear this story. Right? And it's not about me. And so we take it in. Our accepting, rejecting guard of the mind goes to sleep. Right? And we have this guard of the mind, accepting, rejecting, accepting, rejecting, accepting, rejecting. You know, somebody giving you a dramatic instruction. Oh, somebody's criticizing me, I'm going to defend. But it's a story, it's a story. We open up our guard. That's why the media is so powerful. It goes past the guard. And it's subtle. A lot of people think when they're teaching children that they have to explicitly state the moral of the story in order for it to be effective. You don't. You don't have to say, therefore, if you tell lies, you can tell the truth, people don't believe it. You don't have to say that. In fact, if you say that, you're less likely to have an effect. <laughs> Otherwise, it goes in suddenly. Also, according to psychology, when we listen to watch read stories, our brain has a different wave pattern. It has the wave pattern of a light hypnotic trance. You know, the yogis would go into a deep trance and then meditate on the Lord. Why? Because when you meditate in a trance, more effective. And stories automatically put the brain in a state of trance. Now another interesting thing about stories is that hearing a story, watching, hearing, what, reading, that the brain and the body have two-thirds of the experience as if you were actually doing what you were listening to or watching so you might have heard that athletes will sometimes mentally imagine themselves doing what they want to do on the playing field. You've, you've heard about this? So, you know, a tennis player, they'll mentally imagine how they're swinging the ball. And that's part of their practice. And the research has shown that when they do that, the, the parts of the brain and the muscles that would be involved if you were doing it on the gross platform are firing up to two-thirds the amount as they would if you were actually doing it. And the same happens when you read a story, or hear or watch. I'm sure you've noticed that if you're reading a book, or you're watching a movie, or you're hearing a story, and something fearful happens, you feel fearful. You start shaking or perspiring, right? 
That's why people watch and listen and read stories, by the way, to vicariously experience somebody else's emotions as if they were their own. So if you read, hear, watch stories where people are exhibiting higher values, spiritual values, guess what? It's as if you're doing that yourself. On a, on a very real level, you're practicing that without getting out of your chair. And of course, if there's spiritual stories about Krishna, then you're also able, at least, to have a spiritual experience. Hearing stories about Krishna is bhakti. It's not just like reading the scriptures gives us inspiration to do bhakti. Reading the scriptures is itself bhakti. It is itself that experience. And the more realized you are, the more it is that hearing Krishna's pastimes, you end up fully experiencing them. But even someone who's very covered is experiencing them to some extent. So the way to get our children to practice certain behaviors and certain values is to read, watch, have them, listen to, whatever, stories where those values are being practiced. So you can see here the importance of what stories our children are watching, hearing, reading. If they're watching, hearing, reading stories of opposite values, friends, enemies, violence, lust, anger, envy, greed, illusion, that's going to become them every time they're watching, hearing, they're practicing that as if they're doing it. Conversely, we should be spending time with our children telling them stories. Now, many times, parents' relationships with their children say, Hurry up, you know, don't you get excited time to go to school? Where's your socks? Well, that one doesn't act like it happen. Hurry up, you sit down, quick, quick, finish up your record. But you slowly, otherwise, you won't digest it. The bus is coming, you better hurry up, you sit down, bed. Right? And that's the whole everything. That's the whole relationship from morning to night. You know, I was saying with the often when I travel, I say with families, and one family I was saying with, there was a lot of stress in the morning. And I said to the mother, you know, she asked me for help in it, and I said, you know, you're not really doing anything Christian conscious in the morning at all. So Now, before children are five, this is Swamila's opinion, there's no reason to ever tell them any materialistic stories because little children are happy to hear the same story over and over and over and over and over. I mean, when my oldest son was a little baby, there weren't very many children especially conscious story books. I think there were like four. And so we just told the same ones over and over and over again. Or even my mother gave him this little book about a man that traveled around New York City helping people. And he and I worked to Christianize it. He made it his own little story to go with pictures and he put stickers over the words and he wrote his story. And he actually taught himself to read that book. I didn't know at the time that was one of the best ways to teach kids how to read. Just reading that story over that he had written over and over and over. So you don't need 500,000 books for the kids. 500,000 videos, I mean. Just a few that they really need to buy. Okay, so we have relationship of love and trust and stories.
stories. All right, now we have things like routine habits, introspection, tradition, religious institutions, society. So another key way that children learn the culture and values of their society is by finding their place in that society. Having a real, practical, and deep experience that I, as an individual, can get a sense of satisfaction and place and value as a member of this society. This need, it's, it's actually deep spiritual need, to feel that we have value. Phil Proper talks about a little screw, that if a little screw is out of the machine, it has practically no value, but in the machine, it can have immense value. So of course, if we really think about it, I talked about this a little bit yesterday, that our material activities really don't have much value. I'm sorry about this, but it's, it's a sad fact that practically anything we do on a material level just doesn't mean much of anything. You know, it's, it's just some fleeting cloud vapor in the sky. But we're, we have this deep need to do something meaningful, to do something that's valued, that other people appreciate. You know, if I could just describe the third canto of the Bhagavatam, everyone appreciates everyone else's service. Explain that the sweetly singing birds stop their singing to hear the buzzing of the bees glorifying the Lord. You know, bird songs are generally a lot sweeter than bees songs. But there's this appreciation. And the especially colorful and extraordinarily fragrant flowers, they're offering obeisances to Tulsi, who from a material position doesn't have those sort of colors or fragrance. I mean, obviously Tulsi has transcendental fragrance. But at my point is everyone is appreciated. Prabhupada talks about how there's competition in the spiritual world, but it's more appreciative competition. Oh, you've done so. Oh, that's wonderful. Let me do something. It's not an envious competition. All of us need to find where our place is. I mean, ultimately, our place is with Krishna. We have our specific service that no other jiva does for Krishna. We have our specific relationship with Krishna that no other jiva has with Krishna. Did you all know that? You all know the story of Lord Brahma stealing the boys and the cats? Everybody knows that story? Lord Brahma stole Krishna's coward boys and cats and had them all go into a business sleep. And Krishna created duplicate ones that were exactly like the original ones in their outward appearance, in their clothing, and even in their personal preference, what they like to eat, and so forth. And then Lord Brahma comes and sees that there's two sets, one sleeping in the cave and one with Krishna. And he's totally, totally bewildered. And he goes into Samadhi, and he expands his all-knowing potency, and he still can't understand. He's so bewildered that he's really bewildered. So why was he so bewildered? Why was it so outrageously confusing to him? Huh? He thought he was a very great man. Okay, he couldn't imagine that anybody could be as great as he was. That he could create and someone else could also create. That was certainly one reason. And that wasn't enough to totally devastate 
everyday life and it's just Krishna. All right, that's another reason he realized he was playing with his master. He wasn't very happy with that. He was in trouble. But he was just also familiar. He was trying, it wasn't just he was afraid. He was trying to understand what's going on. What was it that he couldn't understand? What was it that just, he said, this is impossible. What was impossible? Someone makes himself so many different. How somebody expands himself, certainly. Just so many, thousands and thousands. But beyond that, what was impossible? That might be amazing, but not impossible. What did he see that was impossible? That God would need company. Of course, materially, that's all more or less illusion. 
It's all a bunch of sandcastles. But there is a place where we do have value. If a society, if a culture, gives its children a sense of value and meaning as part of the whole, that gives people so much satisfaction that they want to be part of that society and part of that culture. I'm probably disappearing today when I was in Auckland, New Zealand in 2011. I asked all the adults to do an exercise that I've done many times with children. I said, please write, and this is a very nice thing to do, please write an offering to Srila Prabhupada, not, oh Prabhupada, you're so great, you saved me. But Srila Prabhupada, this is what I would like to offer your mission. This is my dream. And I said, write it without caring about money or challenge or whatever. Pretend you have no dependence. About 10, 15 people came up to me afterwards and said, this was the first time anyone asked me how I wanted to contribute to Shiva Prabhupada's mission. So one of the most powerful ways you can transmit the culture and the philosophy to your children is to give them meaningful, valuable service in the mission at as young an age as possible. You know, Krishna was tending the cows when he was three and the cows when he was six. It wasn't that long ago that people had the idea that children could do valuable contributions to society. Now we think you have to finish your bachelor's or maybe your master's or maybe your PhD before you can do anything like that. But our children are going to look for where can I be appreciated? Where can I do something valuable? And I would suggest to have the children as soon as possible do not just run work. I mean, menial service is good for training the service attitude. But have the children do something where they're learning some valuable skills. And where other adults in the community will treat the child in one sense of these like another adult. At the latest by age 14, preferably by age 11, if not sooner. To have the children engage in meaningful service, where they're learning something, where they're doing something on an adult level, where they're taking some responsibility, where people are depending on them. Now I see that where this is done, a side benefit is that the children actually learn valuable skills that they can use in their occupation. So that by the time, you know, they're 16, 18 years old, they may know more on a practical level than people who've been to the university and have higher degrees. And they're going out into the work world not only with a degree, but also with the experience. So I've seen this many times on children who raised according to this principle, and they'll tell me. People ask me, where did you, you know, where did you go to school? Where did you grow up? I grew up in the party school. Why are they feeling like that? Because in our Christian movement, they learned how to cook, they learned how to do layout, they learned how to teach, they learned how to do accounting. One temple in Australia I visited where they have an eight-year-old boy that's helping with the treasury and the accounting. I had another temple I went to that's all person understood this principle, and he had the young teenagers have charge of the uh, grounds, the garden. So it's a, this is a very, very important principle. You know, what children want more than anything is to grow up, which 
which is a good thing they do because being grown up is not that great. And they didn't have such a big desire for it, they probably just stay home and run the sweet for the rest of their life. So they want to be grown up and do something meaningful and valuable in society, give them a chance to do that in Christian consciousness. And then they'll feel, yes, I want to be a member of the society. Of course, we can give them something really meaningful. Other societies, other cultures, they can only give varieties of illusion meaning. We can give something that's actually not meaningful. It's not only you know, meaningful from a material level, that you're learning how to do accounting, you're learning how to do layout or something like that, you're learning how to manage a project, but it's also meaningful in that it's part of our internal relationship with Krishna. So relationships with love and trust, stories, and meaningful, valuable, service in the society of the world. He's actually probably really emphasized this sort of thing. He says the children as far as possible to do what the adults are doing. So the fourth thing has something to do with punishments and rewards and mistakes and tradition. But it's not really mentioned here separately. And it's one of the most powerful ways of transmitting culture and values. It's something we all know about. It's something we all experience. It's something that's part of our life. But my guess is that none of you have ever thought about it at all in terms of your own life. And my guess is definitely you haven't thought about it as a tool you can use consciously to help someone else imbibe culture and values and philosophy and behavior. So I'd like to ask you, do you have like a smell that when you smell that particular fragrance you're taken to a certain emotional state not just that you remember something but you actually experience a positive or negative emotional state or maybe some kind of food certain kind of food you eat that when you eat it you re-experience you don't just remember but you re-experience positive or negative state, or maybe a place, maybe a certain place you go to that has a strong emotional component, again, either positive or negative, or certain people, just someone's name or someone's face, that you have an immediate, strong, positive or negative emotional reaction, particular piece of music that again evokes not a memory, but evokes a reliving of an emotional experience. And also a certain way to be in touch. So in psychology, these are called your anchors or triggers. There are certain sensory inputs that triggers or that's anchored to a particular physiological and psychological state of being. And we all have these, right? Everybody has these ones? Yes? Probably never thought about it much, right? So how do these form? They form either from one strong experience or repeated weak experience. So just like I told you the story in relationship to love and trust, my father being with me in the early morning. But what that did is that for me, it created early morning as a trigger. It took me a long time to be aware of this. 
I became aware of it when I was dealing with one of my students who didn't like to wake up early in the morning. And I was thinking, how can anybody not like the early morning? And I started thinking about, well, why do I like to get up early in the morning? I realized it was because for all those years, like 15, 16 years, I got up early in the morning and I was with somebody that I loved. So for me, early morning was associated with love and friendship and relationship and fun. No, it was a week. On a, day, on a daily basis, that was a weak association. But because it was repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated over so many years, that time of day acted as a trigger. Now, another is a one strong experience. So we used to live in Detroit, which was right in Detroit, Michigan, in America, which is about 20 minutes from Windsor, Canada. And there was a large Indian population in Windsor, Canada, not in Detroit. So there were Indian specialty groceries in Canada, and we would go there to shop. So one time when I went to shop, my daughter said, oh, I'd like to go with you, okay. So we went to Canada, and we got to one of the stores. She said, I don't want to go with you. I said, can I just wait in the car? I said, sure, I'll just be five minutes. So when I came out, she was hiding under the dashboard. And I know personally 
of children who were raised in the Hare Krishna movement who tell me they can't pick up Japanese because people yelled at them when they were chanting, oh, you're not chanting, and so they, they, as soon as they go to pick up the beads, they have this negative reaction. So think about space. The temple room here, your altar space at home. Keep it emotionally positive. Now once I studied this about triggers and anchors, I made some changes as a teacher. For example, I made sure that my board in the front of the room, when I stood in the front of the room, I never corrected any of the students. I designated a place in the room. If I needed to correct people, I would go and walk over to that other place and correct them from there. Hey, what's your stuff away? Stop playing. And then I'd walk back here to teach. I was trying to keep the teaching area clean so that people wouldn't have some negative trigger with teaching. I mean, there are people who hate mathematics because they got yelled at during math class. Right, so have your temple area, your altar area, keep that emotionally positive. If you need to correct your children, go someplace else. The time of the day, whatever time of the day you're doing your sadhana, a regular time, that should also be a time unless there's an emergency. You know, one kid's hitting the other kid over the head of the block or something like that. That you don't correct your children. And if you have to again, do it in another place. Think about the atmosphere you're giving with Java, with Kirtan, with Prasada, with Dini Rosha, with reading the books. What kind of triggers are you? Of course, you can't tell. You never can tell what exactly is going to create a trigger for someone. But at least to do the best we can set up that all these aspects of sadhanas will be positive emotional triggers for our children. And again, every culture tries to do this kind of thing. Alright, so now we have the four relationships of love and trust. Next one is? Everybody. Oh, that's terrible. Am I that bad of a teacher? What's the first one? Second one. Third one. Meaningful, meaningful, meaningful. Should I go back and teach? What's the third one? Meaningful, valuable service. And the fourth is positive triggers. Positive triggers. All right. Let's see if we can get that again.
that just do it getting one of these right can happen so your children and the other people you work with want to be part of the culture and the value of the visual process. Okay, I hope you found this interesting. Is this interesting? Useful? Yeah. By the way, 30 years ago, I would not have told this. 30, 35 years ago, if you said to me, how will you make your children Christian conscious? I would have said, well, make sure they're going to every day and check out the baby books and just give them good habits and make sure they do everything every day. And after working with hundreds of kids, I've been, I'm seeing hundreds more and I'm interviewing so many kids, I concluded that that's true, but that's not the whole story. It's not the whole story. That these things need to be there. And kids who have even one of those things, even if they don't have nutrition consciousness in their life, they have one of those things in relationship to Krishna. They're going to want to be a devoted Krishna. I think you can see that this relates to a lot more than just how we make our children. Huh? Yeah. Kind of relates to our society in general? Yes? Okay, questions, comments?
the sound is wired in so they can hear the class peacefully, you know, without feeling that they're disturbing anyone else. So and conversely, I've been in temples, was one temple where uh, my husband and I found a really nice room that wasn't being used. It was just being used for storage. And we asked the town president, can we fix this up in some mother's room? And he said, sure, and we did. We spent like two weeks and a lot of money fixing it up and cleaning it. And then he came and said, oh, I didn't realize this was such a nice room. <laughs> and he took it for something else. <laughs> so, um, So one thing that some authorities can do is make a physical place. So ideally we do that when there's new construction going on. But to create some place where uh, parents or young children can go without disturbing everybody else. That's one thing I see. Another thing is to have special programs for the children. So I was just coming from a community where every week they have people all over the area. They have about 800 children in weekly classes. And they train the members of the community to be teachers. And they teach the kids slogans, and they teach them stories, and just simple, very basic thing. And then once a year, especially, maybe more than that, especially once a year, the kids, when I was just there for this big presentation, they took over a school auditorium. And the kids put on all these dramas and dances. I mean, they were pretty simple because the kids are only getting together once a week or an hour. But they're engaging the whole community, and the parents end up becoming devotees because the kids are in the program. But the parents end up becoming vegetarian, they end up becoming devotees. They're, they're process for making devotees is like that for teaching kids. And some places have programs, especially for the youth. They have special programs geared to them where they do services within the temple and get this meaningful, valuable work where they're engaging in preaching. You know, you've been talking about, let's say, 1415, 1415 to 1425, where they organize their own retreats and things, things of that nature. Other things I've seen is where temples really welcome the kids to do service in the temple, obviously, when it's appropriate. I mean, I was recently in a temple with um, my 14-year-old grandson. And he said, oh, Grandma, this particular project inspires me. I've read up all about it. I really want to be part of it. It's something, you know, I really like to work with it. So I contacted the devotee in charge of that project. And he said, sorry, we don't let any young children be. He's a 14-year-old boy, right? So having projects where the kids are also young, where they can practice, you know, where they can help with the library, where they can help with the, um, the newsletter, you know, they can do the layout for the newsletter, they can write for the newsletter, they can create posters, they can do service for deities, things like that. Well, these are the kinds of things I've seen that are very successful. Some places do all of those things, some places do none of them. Places just do some of them. And also having a schedule at a time that makes sense for families. So there's many examples where, say, the Sunday program is so late at night that if you have young children who need to go to school the next day, it's not practical for them to go. And the families may go to the temple authorities and say, you know, this doesn't work for our family. Oh, well, too bad. 
So I've seen some temples where things are arranged to facilitate families and children. You know, the hours are arranged to facilitate the children and there'll be a program also that goes on that specifically for the children. Is that okay? Anybody else? Okay, thank you very much. I'll go to the